Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So let's talk about this. Let's get started on the issue of the Delta variant, reportedly, according to CDC papers, uh, spreading as quickly as chickenpox, and even a fully vaxxed person, so the CDC documentation suggests, who contracts the Delta variant, may spread it to eight or nine other people. What's the international health concern? Also, what does our guest think of the reopening of society as we're doing it in various parts of this country? And again, Alberta's uh, initiative, dropping virtually all COVID restrictions and, again, treating COVID like other communicable diseases like the annual flu. Dr. Ronald St. John has been involved with public health for 35 years in this country with the Public Health Agency of Canada and the United States with the CDC. He was the World Health Organization Director for the Americas, first director of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at PHAC, national manager for Canada's response to SARS, and the founder of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, also known as GFIN. I don't know why the federal government hasn't gotten that going again properly, because it was invaluable. Dr. St. John, good to have you back on the program. How are you, sir? I'm really well, and thank you so much for the invitation. Anytime. I always love to talk to you. What are your thoughts on the Delta variant and the word from the CDC that it spreads as easily as chickenpox and fully vaccinated people can contract the variant and pass it on to eight or nine others? What does that say to you? Well, a couple of things. Uh, To say it spreads uh, as quickly as chickenpox, I assume they mean in unvaccinated people, but it's not specified. But I would assume assume that it's, uh, it's among unvaccinated people. Um, I've, I've glanced at some of the data, but it's not peer reviewed and it's not published in a scientific journal kind of way about, uh, about vaccinated people spreading the disease. We know that vaccinated people can become infected. Uh, the, vi- the vaccine is not 100% effective. Uh, so some people can, uh, won't, won't have a good response. Some people can't be, um, uh, some of the vaccinated people may indeed become infected. Um, how often they spread it, the frequency of spread, that's what's not clear to me uh, in the data that's been presented so far. And so far, I think it's just been an internal document that's been spread around. Mm. So I'm waiting to see uh, a little more data. Uh, you know, in other places, for example, Israel, where they looked at healthcare workers, vaccinated healthcare workers, and they were looking at uh, breakthrough infections in those, and the breakthrough infected people, they say, did not spread it to anyone. But again, that was before Delta. So there's so many ifs, uh, and I'm waiting to see uh, a little bit more information. Dr. St. John, people will use the CDC information as an argument against being vaccinated. What do you say about the value of being vaccinated at this time? All spreading uh, and transmission issues aside, the vaccines that we have have been extremely, I just stress, extremely effective in preventing serious illness and death. And that has been a, a major breakthrough. Uh, and, and that is the, one of the primary reasons why anybody who's not vaccinated should be vaccinated as soon as possible. So what are your thoughts then on the Alberta approach? Contact tracing is over. And as of the 16th of August, a person who tests positive for COVID will not be required to quarantine. It is recommended, but not required. Uh, We're all going to have to treat COVID as another communicable disease like the annual flu at some point. 
with a high percentage of Canada's national population being vaccinated, is there a sustainable argument that we have reached this particular point in time that Alberta's argument, Alberta's position is sustainable? I, I don't I don't understand the strategy. I think in, if I'm my, uh, I looked up some data and if I'm correct, in the last two weeks or so, the number of new cases per day has has been is, has increased fivefold, fivefold from 30 to 150 thereabouts. Um, so you have an increasing curve, uh, which means there has been increased transmission, um, and you have about 30 percent, 35 percent of your population unvaccinated. That's one out of every three people unvaccinated. What is the strategy for stopping all of your measures to contain the virus? I mean, we've gotten where we are because we use public health measures and we used vaccines. Have we gotten enough vac- people vaccinated to cover off removal of all of the public health measures? I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't see it. When do you think we would logically be prepared to declare COVID to be endemic and take the uh, approach that Alberta and other jurisdictions, for example, the United, many in the United States have taken? Hard to say, you know, uh, some of the provinces have targets of 80% of the population have at least one dose and 70% being fully protected with two doses. Um, and, uh, and then uh, everything will be okay. Uh, but, you know, you look, you look around and at a place like Sydney in Australia, where they had very few or almost no cases for, a lo- for quite a while. And now they've had four weeks of lockdown uh, extended because they're trying to get control of a surge of cases. Um, at some point in time, and I don't know when that is exactly, but certainly when we go periods of time with no cases maybe, at some point in time we have to do something to uh, re- revive the economy, et cetera, and be prepared for outbreaks of the, dis- of the disease and be prepared to go backwards and institute strict lockdown for localized control of infections. Exactly when that is, I'm not sure. Um, so it's a difficult question, and I think we need to just, re, as Ontario has been doing, remove some of the measures, wait and see, wait and see what happens for a little bit, remove a few more, and, uh, and hopefully things will stay under control. Dr. St. John, the takeaway or the takeaways from SARS, you were the national manager at that time, did public health and did governments take full advantage of the most relevant lessons learned from SARS when it came to responding to COVID, or were some of the programs, some of the recommendations that came from that SARS investigation set aside and not put to use when they maybe should have been? I'd say um, there were some lessons learned <clears throat> that were actually uh, applied. There's a saying in emergency, in emergency response circles that a lesson learned is not learned until it's applied. Uh, and in the, there were a few lessons learned that were certainly applied. One had to do with communication. Uh, during SARS 2003, one of the problems that we had was there were too many spokespersons with slightly different messages, <clears throat> all sort of speaking at the same time. Uh, <clears throat> that's been solved uh, to a large extent. As you look around uh, the country, the spokespersons tend to be the chief medical officers of the provinces and the Minister of Health uh, of the, the, uh, of the uh, province plus the Premier. So uh, we've narrowed it down to uh, basically trying to have single messages, consolidated, coordinated messages. So that's a good thing. 
Um, we learned a lot about hospital infection control from SARS 2003, and uh, a lot of those lessons have been uh, applied. Um, unfortunately, they weren't applied in uh, nursing homes. We've learned some lessons there that nursing homes are particularly susceptible to a respiratory virus. Where things did not go so well, I don't I think, is um, data sharing and data common data systems between uh, different different uh, public health systems in the provinces uh, and, and with the federal government. Um, I am aware of one province I won't mention by name where uh, five five sub jurisdictions have five different data data systems that are not compatible with each other. Um, and that means somebody has to do a manual manual labor labor to transfer data from one each one of these systems into a common system. So we still don't have uh, what I would call optimal data sharing uh, across the country. Yeah, so what do we do each time? A COVID variant appears, a new one. That could be out there right now. We're not even aware. Uh, I think I'm correct about that. So what do we do? What's the best approach then? If a new variant appears and it starts to show signs that it could be a significant problem, uh, are, 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 are you confident that our response will be what it should be? Well, uh, let me start by saying that there, there is a, a repetitive cycle that happens in emergencies. <clears throat> And when, when there is an emergency that hits, the government's response can be intense with, with absolute unlimited funding to deal with it. Uh, and then the response works and the emergency is solved. Uh, and then you go into a period where nothing is happening. Well, that's the most important time. Uh, when nothing is happening, that's when you train people. That's when you revise your plans. That's when you do exercises much like the military. The military knows that between wars, you don't stop doing things. You, you train, you keep training and training your personnel. You get new personnel, they have to be trained. This is something that is often uh, lost by governments because they move on to other priorities. In my opinion, one of the things we have to get, have to get our head around is that period between uh, emergencies when this COVID thing might be under control or even over, We've got to continue to plan and work and train people for the next one. All right. So that makes me think about the Global Public Health Intelligence Agency, which you founded and which was a great success for this country and for the World Health Organization and for other countries in locating dangerous public health concerns like pandemics long before you otherwise would become or the world would otherwise become aware. Uh, I'm absolutely surprised, amazed really, the GFIN hasn't been properly put back in place by the current federal government. They dismantled it. COVID could clearly have illustrated how significantly, or should have clearly illustrated how significantly we need GFIN. Would, would you agree? And, and please yeah. remind us what, what the role was that GFIN played. Well, GFIN was a system that is, is, is for early detec detection of events. Um, <clears throat> that means you, you try to find something in health that is unusual, uh, unexpected. Uh, people in a village suddenly dying with no cause, uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, so it was set up to be computer-based and be able to scan the world for, uh, for events as quickly as possible. But again, it became sort of a, um, a casualty of this period I've been telling you about where between, between emergencies, people began to think, well, there hasn't been since 2010 with H1N1, 
there hasn't been anything really big happening anywhere in the world. Why are we investing the money and time and effort in this global scanning when nothing is happening? Well, that's when you do do it, is you, because you have, if you're not there looking, you'll miss it when it comes. So there was a de-emphasis on, uh, on GFIN, a changing of its mission, a changing of its personnel, uh, and, and it, it, it just it lost, it lost its uh, mission and goals. Um, there has been a review panel uh, that has put out a report now, uh, the review panels established by the minister, uh, and they put out a, uh, an excellent report uh, with a lot, large number of recommendations. The point now is getting those recommendations put back in place and executed. Yeah, uh, for sure. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 